Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books and Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese. I am professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the channel with Carrie Figder. Carrie is associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. Today, I'll be talking to Tom Brooks about his new book, Punishment, which has recently been published by Routledge. Brooks is reader-in-law at Durham Law School and Associate in Philosophy at Durham University. Social stability and justice require that we live together according to rules, and this in turn means that the rules must be enforced. Accordingly, we sometimes see fit to punish those who break the rules. Hence, society features a broad system of institutions by which we punish. But there's a deep and long-standing philosophical disagreement over what, precisely, punishment is for. The standard views are easy to anticipate. Some say that we punish in order to give offenders what they deserve. Others claim that we punish in order to encourage others to obey the rules. Still others see punishment as a process of rehabilitating offenders. Recent theorists have attempted to combine these standard views in various ways, and so the debates go on. In his new book, Tom Brooks reviews these leading debates and makes a compelling case for a distinctive theory of punishment that he calls the unified theory. Brooks contends that the unified theory can embrace several highly intuitive penal goals while avoiding the philosophical difficulties confronting each of the competing theories of punishment. But can one theory do it all? Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Tom Brooks. Hello. How are you today? I'm magnificent. How are you, Bob? Oh, I'm doing fine. Thank you so much for joining us on New Books in Philosophy. A real pleasure. Well, folks, today uh, my guest on New Books in Philosophy is Tom Brooks. His new book is titled Punishment, and it's just out with Routledge. Um, This book... um, is to be recommended um, because it successfully uh, manages two objectives which are um, not easily uh, synthesized. Um, That is, punishment, the book, is at once uh, an engaging survey of the leading debates and issues concerning the nature and purposes of punishment, um, while it's also at the same time um, an articulation and a defense of Brooks's own distinctive view of punishment, uh, a view that he calls the unified theory of punishment. So it's at once a sort of introduction to the field and a substantive philosophical defense of a particular view within it. Um, The book is also, uh, I think, uh, to be recommended because it does a very nice job, I thought, of uh, combining sort of philosophical and conceptual uh, matters with 
uh, empirical uh, questions about the data concerning crime and punishment, uh, imprisonment, uh, recidivism, and these sorts of things. Um, so it's it's a it's a quite engaging read and and a, and a real nice uh, uh, entree into the field. Uh, but it's also got plenty to offer uh, uh, those who are already um, working in the field. Um, so there's a lot to talk about, folks. Um, but Tom, why don't you start us off in our usual way uh, by telling us a little bit about yourself? Right. Um, well, um, I came to philosophy in uh, perhaps a, a different than usual uh, way or followed a different than usual uh, path. Um, I'm originally from New Haven, uh, Connecticut, although uh, have lived in a couple of countries, uh, including Republic of Ireland and now the UK. I've lived in the UK for over 10 years now. Um, and when I uh, started uh, along my academic path, you know, many of the academic philosophers I know um, originally studied philosophy as philosophy majors um, and, uh, as undergraduates, but uh, I instead uh, started uh, my career studying music. Um, and uh, at, at the wonderful university, Bob, you'll know very well, uh, called William Patterson. Yes. <laughs> and uh, where, where dreams come true. And uh, when I was at William Patterson studying music, um, I became very interested in classical Indian music uh, with a supervisor, uh, Hugh Aiken, who I did not know at the time was an active member of the Hegel Society of America, which was an interesting thing I found out many years after I, I had uh, left. So perhaps there were some seeds, uh, uh, philosophical seeds, put in my mind uh, uh, very early on. And when I got into Indian classical music, I was being advised that if I really wanted to kind of get to grips to this, I had to speak to someone at William Patterson who was a professor of, of government uh, who did Indian politics to kind of know a bit more about the, the ethics and the, and, the, and the context of this wonderful stuff, uh, Ravi Shankar and other stuff. And, of course, uh, Maya Chatter was her name, and she then uh, tried to push me more to uh, studying um, uh, the, the politics surrounding, because many of the, the uh, Indian classical music, many uh, it, it's recanting stories or uh, just in certain kinds of um, uh, uh, myths or other, or other elements. And, um, and this led to, originally, I had this kind of deep interest in Indian politics and culture, um, I then went to Arizona State uh, University to study uh, political science and had a supervisor who was from Bengal who had himself done a PhD in philosophy and convinced me that if I really wanted to come to grips with these kind of deeper contextual issues surrounding these things that I found so fascinating about Indian culture and, and politics, I have to say this is one of the many things I've got very much in common with Martha Nussbaum. We both have a kind of deep interest in, in Indian uh, culture and politics stuff. Um, that I had to kind of get, engage with the uh, Indian philosophical uh, uh, tradition. And that's when I, I became interested in that. But one of the problems uh, uh, that I had, uh, I had two at least at this time, one was that uh, in the world of political science, much of, the, um, uh, much of the way that political theory of philosophy was done was not just historical, but focused on, on some books of authors and not others. So you looked at some things written by Kant and not other works by Kant, some works by David Hume and not other works by Hume, and, and, and so on down the list. The other problem was that having an interest in, in Indian philosophy meant that I was talking about books and, uh, and people that uh, were un wildly unfamiliar to 
other folks. And, and it was towards the end of my time uh, in Arizona that I uh, was introduced to the work of Hegel in British Idealism. And what I found really uh, interesting about this was it gave me people and a language that I could use that were more uh, 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 friendly to, uh, at least, you know, to, to the audiences around me, um, uh, expressing kind of similar-ish kinds of ideas, but uh, without having to give the unfamiliar names uh, and, and, and so on. This led me to focus a bit more centrally on uh, Hegel's ideas and Hegelian philosophy, and I went to University College Dublin to uh, study an MA, for an MA in philosophy there, and it was uh, at that time that I wrote my dissertation on the death penalty. It was the first time that I, it was whether or not it was just, uh, uh, and, and looking at uh, different kinds of positions that one uh, could uh, argue for and defend in the debate that might reveal something new uh, about it. Um, and it was really the first time that I, I really started to get stuck into thinking about theories of punishment at that time. I then later did my PhD uh, in philosophy at Sheffield University, focusing uh, more on Hegel, but at that same time, my interest in, in punishment uh, uh, grew and developed, and, uh, and, and, and to some extent, uh, my interest in the, the subject of my book is uh, very much, uh, has been there, as it were, as far back as my interest in Hegelianism and other things, as far back as my interest in, in uh, philosophy. Um, and, uh, yeah, and, and so since that time, I've uh, worked for several years in a uh, political science department at Newcastle University, and I'm now at uh, Durham Law School uh, teaching both uh, jurisprudence, you know, philosophy of law, and also um, uh, criminal law as well. Well, that sounds like a pretty amazing journey. Um, <laughs> <laughs> different. Uh, it's just different. <laughs> you know, it, it does – maybe this is just um... – uh, a bad a case of bad sampling, but um, it does strike me that there are a lot of philosophers who um, are interested in music, and in fact, the interest in music is somehow uh, at the source of their interest in philosophy. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, I come across a lot of people who tell uh, um, that kind of story, and somehow music was where they started. Um, I think it's in the Phaedo that philosophy says, that Socrates says that philosophy is the best kind of music. Um, but anyway, um, <laughs> let's, I, I, let's, I would truly agree with that. And there's, there's other people, as you say, if not music, then maybe um, uh, theater. I think um, uh, Nussbaum, I think she started originally in, in theater or drama uh, when she started her undergraduate studies at NYU. She didn't start in philosophy uh, either um, Jeff McMahon, I think, did literature as his first degree. So you know, this this idea of kind of arts broadly conceived has got a lot of has attracted a lot of philosophers. Uh, it's been a great conduit for people doing philosophy later on in their careers. Yes. Something interesting there. Um, but let's let, let's let's talk about the book, uh, shall we? Yes, please. Um, sure. So um, let's begin where the book Punishment itself uh, begins. Um, uh, so the book begins with um, an assessment and evaluation of the long-standing, we might say, traditional theories of punishment, um, mm. retributivism, deterrence theories, uh, 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 rehabilitation views. Um, and uh, you do a very nice job, I think, of laying out the, the central um, claims of each of these conceptions or theories of punishment, um, and, uh, but you find each lacking. Um, mm. Could you um, run us through uh, at least uh, the, the, the major sort of traditional views uh, 
and sort of sketch for us what the views are about and uh, tell us where they're lacking. And I think this is an important uh, uh, part of talking about your book because um, the unified theory, although it's not an, your, your view, although it's not an mm-hmm. attempt to sort of synthesize all the theories of punishment, it is an attempt to synthesize different conceptions of what punishment is for. Uh, and so maybe getting different, uh, getting the lay of the land would be, would be a good place uh, uh, to start uh, our discussion of the book. So, so please. Yeah, great. So, yeah, so the, the book is in three uh, parts. And the first part is um, on general theories. Part two will then, uh, of course, consider hybrid theories. And then I end with some case studies. With the general theories, I'm looking at uh, theories of punishment that have, as it were, you know, kind of one uh, uh, purpose uh, that, uh, that the theory is, is, is built around, um, one purpose for, for uh, punishment. Uh, or one one a single justification, and um, and these are of course the kind of classic views uh, of punishment: retribution, deterrence, rehabilitation. I also add another restorative justice. I'll say something about in a moment. Um, to take them each in turn, um, uh, or I should say, before I take them each in turn, um, I did think it was very important, and I'm glad it came across um, at least for you, and I hope for other readers that. Um, I think it's important that when uh, we survey the views that other people have, you know, there's this idea of, of having charity, in a, in a sense, seeing things in their best light. I think you know, the one purpose of this book was to kind of get clear on what people mean by um, these, these words, retribution and deterrence and other things, and, and unpack uh, how often these are tense, encompassing many different um, uh, views. But I thought it was important to say something about why people think this is attractive um, before showing why there might be some problems with how it conceives of itself, then later turning to you know, what other kind of vision uh, these people might find more attractive. Um, taking each in turn now, um, retribution, deterrence, rehabilitation, restorative justice. With retribution, retribution is, of course, the, the classic theory, often thought to be the, the oldest theory of punishment. It's understood in many different ways, perhaps the the, the most time-honored, if there <laughs> such a such a way of characterizing it, is the idea that uh, offenders, criminals, uh, should be punished uh, because they uh, deserve punishment, and uh, to the, the degree uh, they deserve uh, punishment. Here, desert does an awful lot of work, and and someone is deserving. Uh, roughly speaking, there's many ways to to capture this and to cash this out, but roughly speaking. Um, broadly, uh, to deserve is to have a kind of moral responsibility for some wicked act, to do some uh, kind of evil. And the thought is that people who are criminals um, uh, should be punished because they do something bad. And the more bad it is, and, 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 and of course, assuming they're responsible for this badness, um, the more they should be punished. So the uh, typical illustration, um, for example, taken from Immanuel Kant, is say you know the murderer is is punished uh, with death because uh, you know murder is is a crime where the inner wickedness the viciousness is is physical you can see it uh, in the world uh, the evil is made made real um, now of course on the one hand this view has got uh, has many adherents um, in part because it uh, it gets in some sense many things. I think, right, one of the things I think it gets right is the idea that um, uh, we ought never punish the innocent. Um, so this idea that uh, offenders must be uh, deserving, they must have done something 
to have uh, to warrant punishment, and also this idea that the thing that they did should have some kind of link with um, the treatment uh, that uh, that they receive um, through uh, punishment. So these ideas of a desert and proportionality uh, running through retribution uh, has something attractive to it, and. and um, and then when we think about cases of theft and we think about murder, you might say, look, you know, both of these kinds of, of crimes are, 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 are bad things, they're, they're evil things. Any, uh, any uh, just state we would imagine would on balance um, uh, criminalize uh, theft and murder. Um, but uh, they would also say that one would be, uh, should be punished more than the other. And retribution's answer is that the murder is more deserving and they do something um, uh, more uh, more bad in some sense. Where I think retribution uh, runs into some trouble is that it, it runs with, and this is a problem that is not unique to retribution, but it's a it's a problem just that's particular to retribution as well. That uh, it's it's dependent upon a wider framework of uh, natural law uh, jurisprudence that that can be itself um, uh, problematic. So it runs with this idea that we're in some sense punishing various acts of immorality. And of course, there's two issues with that. One is it's, uh, uh, that, that kind of view is perhaps too wide in the sense that um, not all acts of, that are uh, immoral uh, we punish. So telling white lies, you know, telling you, Bob, that we have a surprise birthday party for you or something like this. No one says that these kinds of things should be um, uh, punished. So where do we set the, the threshold or not is, is, is an issue, uh, I think, for this view. And the uh, so I think it's too wide in that way. And also, in, in a sense, it um, uh, got something else wrong, which is uh, in some sense, uh, which moral view, which morality, what is the standard that we are to use um, in making um, uh, these judgments? And not least because it's not clear that not all crimes, um, you know, we don't punish all acts of immorality, and, we don't all, and not all crimes are clearly uh, immoral. So illegal parking and speeding, um, perhaps could be, but I don't see why they necessarily are. And I think there's a there's a, um, a a problem here for retribution that I explore a lot more in the book. I call it a problem of amoral uh, crimes. Um, okay. On deterrence, uh, deterrence, of course, is another view that has uh, that's almost uh, as old as uh, uh, retribution. Generally, the idea that um, the the aim of, of punishment is to deter uh, future offenders. Um, and uh, has, uh, has a long and, and proud tradition um, as well. Lots of people accept it because, of course, you know, deterrence also gets, you know, uh, something I think that is right. And that is that when we're thinking about punishment in criminal justice, a criminal justice system that made crime more likely, um, that, that uh, made, you know, that, that didn't enable crime reduction would be, I think, really fundamentally problematic um, and, and hard to... Um, Hard to accept, and the turn seems to get uh, uh, um, uh, get that truth uh, right. The issues for deterrence are namely in how it conceives of how we uh, um, uh, undertake this project of pursuing uh, crime reduction. One is, I think, that there's what I call the the problem of uh, the geography of crime. It's thought that um, you know the way to deter offenders is to put. Uh, uh, people in prison and punish them effectively as if crime is something that only happens outside uh, prison walls, which isn't um, true. Another problem is a problem of, of difference, that uh, deterrence is about sending out, um, uh, 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 well, some 
uh, some kind of threat, but you know, the, the, this, this, the, the communication of the threat um, can be uh, received very differently by different people. And it's hard to uh, control the message to ensure that deterrence uh, could uh, take place. But there is a, a larger problem, uh, perhaps, which is deterrence is, is uh, while it might make we might be intuitively convinced that uh, a, a, a certain kind of offense might deter people. It's very difficult to see how we could have any empirical uh, evidence that people are deterred. So a common uh, example I'll use with my uh, students in, in Durham and, and, and where I've uh, lectured elsewhere is to say, right, everybody, so how many people were almost deterred from stealing a bicycle today coming to class because of the fear of the threat uh, from the uh, necessary, you know, related act uh, pertaining to the theft of bicycles, um, you know, that that had some kind of motivation um, uh, for you. And of course, no one knows what that could be, or could probably know uh, what that um, uh, could be. So there's issues about whether or not we could ever know uh, that anyone uh, is uh, has been deterred. Of course, we can measure um, how uh, you know how crime rights uh, might change over time, and we can. Uh, try to come up with some view as to what might be the causes uh, for that or uh, uh, not. But uh, you know, deterrence has has a real problem about whether or not it's actually uh, working or not. Moving then swiftly to rehabilitation, so the third uh, view I consider in this uh, first part of the book. Um, rehabilitation, of course, the view that the, the aim of punishment should be the rehabilitation um, offenders. Rehabilitation also gets something right. I mean, I think it's very important to highlight this. That I think each gets something fundamentally right, um, which is why they've got adherence, why people defend these views. Rehabilitation adherence get right the fact that almost all offenders are one day going to uh, be released. Um, right. uh, and if they're going to be released, do we want them to become better offenders? Do we want them to be people who don't uh, re-offend? Um, and the rehabilitation theory of punishment says that it's very important to uh, uh, engage in this process of, of individual uh, reformation. They run into several uh, problems that I uh, look at in the book. One uh, a problem they have, of course, is the problem about unreformable uh, uh, persons and issues about civil disobedience. Um, another is a problem of treating like cases alike. Um, so it might be if you've got two uh, people who committed very similar offenses, but one uh, is more quick to admit that oh I made a big mistake and um, and be more in, be, generally I won't do that again. Is that person released more quickly than the the other by days, months, years um, than the other because the other might take more rehabilitation uh, or uh, should uh, seemingly less serious uh, offenses be punished much more uh, greatly because the uh, the offenders uh, are more difficult to rehabilitate um, and so on. And then finally I turn to a view called restorative justice. Uh, in uh, older uh, books looking at uh, uh, on the uh, theories of punishment, this view or this kind of perspective might have been called abolitionism, the idea of uh, uh, that um, uh, a kind of a non-prison response to um, uh, crime. Uh, restorative justice is, is broadly speaking the idea that um, uh, it's a defense of a non-traditional way of thinking about uh, how we should deal with crime. Instead of the, the trial, instead of uh, sentencing, and the thought is that, that trials are formalistic, people feel very alienated, it's not clear that justice is happening for a variety of people, witnesses, victims, and others. Um, 
And also, it's not clear with Siddhartha Singh that, that it has the effects that uh, its proponents claim, the good effects that its proponents say it should. Restrictive justice says that instead we should have an, an informal process rather than a formal process. Sometimes a victor-offender mediation with a facilitator or, or some kind of uh, small conference uh, setting where the, the victim and, and, uh, and members of the community perhaps uh, try to make the case to the offender but why you know, what effect that crime had on them. And the offender has a chance to kind of better understand uh, the, the, the damage that, they, that he or she uh, 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 did. But also um, the, the end result is a, is a kind of a contract where uh, the offender agrees to, well, one, it's premised upon the offender apologizing to the victim, not through a solicitor, but through his or her own words. And many victims claim that that is very powerful. Um, a second thing is that um, often there's some kind of community sentence, so there's some kind of uh, good work in the community that is required of, of one kind or another. And also there's a, a, rep, a payment of reparation of some kind made uh, often agreed uh, with uh, victims. That, that, that to go forward must be agreed by the offender. If not, uh, they did then go to the, the uh, formal uh, uh, process. Restorative justice also has a lot of things going for it. Uh, namely, it can say the following. Look, um, this approach uh, has been proven to have higher satisfaction rates, not just for offenders, who, of course, we might expect will be delighted to have no genuine possibility, at least at the first instance of going to prison um, uh, and avoid a, a, a trial, but also high, much higher satisfaction rates for uh, victims uh, themselves. Another thing it seems to get right um, is uh, much less, uh, much improved uh, crime uh, reduction. So it, it seems to be more effective in the cases it's been used. Um, and another thing it's done, it's been able to do this at much lower cost um, than uh, alternatives. So uh, one study in the United Kingdom showed that for every uh, uh, pound spent on restorative justice, um, you saved about nine pounds uh, through uh, traditional um, uh, sentencing. So it's got an awful lot right as it were going for it. But what I, uh, some criticisms I raise about why we should hesitate before we all jump on and, and support restorative justice is to say, well, what is being restored? Um, different proponents of restorative justice have different views upon what is being restored, whether it be some kind of moral relation between us and them, or whether it's some kind of uh, idea about moral standing or other things. So it's not quite clear um, what exactly is being restored. And more centrally, uh, uh, the idea of, as it were, trying to restore an unequal stand, moral standing between me and you, between um, fellow citizens and the offender, well, there might be unequal standing before an offense happened anyway. And if the idea of equal standing is very important for restorative justice proponents, as perhaps rightly it should be, then we don't need people to be performing crimes to have that view. So there's some issues about what is being restored and, and, and the role that should and, uh, uh, play. Um, the other uh, issues I raise are with its limits, that its success and other things that is going for it it's often used for youth offenders and for minor offenses, and it's hasn't, it's, you know, to some degree, it hasn't really been um, uh, uh, tested uh, uh, properly. Uh, and I, I question whether or not uh, prison could, you know, should be part of restorative process. And I, I, and, I and, um, and perhaps we'll talk later about this idea of punitive restoration, where I think that uh, some kind of um, uh, more punitive element um, should uh, and can be um, incorporated in restorative justice. So these are the the, the, the broad 
<laughs> uh, views of retribution, deterrence, rehabilitation, restorative justice, and you know why uh, these views have been attractive to so many people, and, and I think for lots of for some very good reasons, but also why I think that there's the each has runs into some serious problems that should hesitate uh, should make us hesitate before we uh, join their camp. Well, fantastic. Um, now I note that um, after dealing with these. Um, uh, traditional, uh, long-standing kinds of views. You take up more recent views, um, and in particular, uh, you take up um, um, two. Well, you take ultimately you take up three, because mm -hmm. you include your own as a mixed theory. Um, so uh, you take up two other mixed theories, though. One is the uh, a view uh, or a pair of views that I, I suspect um, many of our listeners will be familiar with. Uh, one view associated with Rawls and the other associated with HLA Hart. Mm -hmm. um, and I, 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 let's 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 move. Uh, uh, um, uh, uh, let's skip over those. I, I, I take it that the short the short answer is that the the Rawls view and the Hart view, uh, in being mixed theories, inherit the problems with the views that they mix. Um, mm -hmm. Now there is a, 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 a an additional kind of mixed view that you take up that I would like to hear more about because it seems like it's one of the the newcomers on the scene, mm -hmm. um, and it's called expressivism. Um, yeah. Can you tell us about expressivism and why you think it? is insufficient. Yes, um, that, 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 uh, what you say is absolutely right. So, in, so I've, I've, I've already talked about part one, now we turn to part two in the hybrid theories. Um, um, I, I looked at the Rolls and Hart view in mixed theory, I should just say quickly, uh, in part because I thought it was an important uh, view to uh, note, not least because it's the views of Rolls and Hart that are, have uh, some, some broad overlap. Um, but of course, one of the problems with it is that it has, I think, uh, very few um, sincere uh, adherents um, um, uh, for that view. Expressivism is a view that, uh, if you look uh, closely enough, you can find. Um, yeah, there's a famous quote of a, of a Victorian judge about um, punishment is it, it basically is like a, a stamp that seals the hot wax of, 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 of public sentiment and anger about what uh, uh, somebody did. But expressivism uh, is basically a view, I, I think, uh, a, a more recently we can attribute to Joel Feinberg and has found um, <laughs> greater expression uh, in uh, the work <laughs> of people like Anthony uh, Duff and others in what they call the uh, a communicative uh, uh, theory. And the expressivist view of Feinberg is to say that um, punishment has, amongst other things, an expressivist uh, component, or it ought to have an expressivist component, in order to justify the use of what he calls hard treatment or imprisonment. And this is, of course, the idea that um, punishment is not simply uh, a view about um, we as a community say this is illegal and um, versus other things, but it's a view that gives expression to uh, certain kind of values that are shared in, in the in the community. It's a um, punishment is an expression of public denunciation about the views that we do. So when we punish someone, it's it's as if we're shouting to someone, you know, hey, you, we don't like what you did, and the more we dislike what they did, the louder we shout, uh, corrative, uh, the more we 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 punish. So the more severe the punishment, the more we denounce what they do. The greater the expression that we don't like what they uh, did. Um, I've included in this chapter um, uh, the communicative theory, and I, I think we can we can talk about them uh, together. So the communicative theory by Anthony Duff, John Tassioulis, and 
and and several others, as you say, kind of the the other you know other than perhaps my view, the the other kind of newcomer on the scene and, and very popular with a lot of people for lots of good reasons. Again, I, I'm very sympathetic to lots of these views, which is why I think they should all come together uh, in a unified uh, uh, view. But the communicative, communicative view uh, says uh, very roughly that um, with Feinberg, you know, the idea that we the punishment just merely expresses we don't like what you did is, uh, you know, it gets, you know, there's a communication going one way, but there should be some communication uh, coming back from the offender, some kind of apology uh, uh, back from uh, the offenders. There should, there should be something expressed both ways, ultimately, um, in punishment. And, and, and how this is then a, a hybrid mixed theory um, is that, um, say, for Duff, um, when we are uh, expressing our condemnation, we're giving a view about, uh, you know, we, we're only uh, punishing people because they deserve it. So we're giving some expression to what people uh, deserve. Um, the thought is that when we give this expression about what we think people should deserve through um, hard, hard treatment, this is uh, this 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 loud call that we utter uh, is uh, should deter uh, be a kind of uh, provide some kind of general deterrence to others uh, that uh, you know we take this seriously and we enforce this 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 threat, and also it's supposed to have this kind of reformative uh, moment. So the thought that when I'm an offender and I'm in prison. That um, in being in prison, um, I uh, I communicate something back. I'll say something about this in a second. This is supposed to lead to uh, more often than not some kind of rehabilitation of the offender. So it's supposed to speak to desert deterrence and rehabilitation to some degree or another. And my so what I think it gets right is surely punishment uh, in all its forms, from very broadly speaking, from uh, the, the 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 fixed fine you might get for parking in the wrong place on campus to uh, to the uh, death sentence we might receive for um, uh, being convicted of murder from all these different ranges. It's clear, it's, at least in a metaphorical sense. Yes, you know, puni- that our punishment is a you know it's a it's a way of community saying, hey, we don't like what you did. Um, if they liked what we did, they, we wouldn't be fined. We wouldn't have community service. We wouldn't have had a verbal warning. We wouldn't have been sent to prison. Um, so, so metaphorically, at least, yes, of course, it has this expressive uh, moment. But what I question, I question several things here. Is one, I wonder what work, what genuine work, expressivism does in the justification of punishment. Because at the end of the day, when we look closely at Feinberg's view, and even when we look closely at Duff's views and and, and other uh, communicative theorists, at the end of the day, um, it's not about public denunciation. The public denounces lots of things. The public doesn't like different minority groups. It doesn't like immigrants. It doesn't like lots of different (laughs) uh, things. We don't necessarily, you know, no expressivist or communicative theorist says we then go out and punish uh, people because uh, the community wants to denounce what they're like or who they are or other kinds of things. No, uh, expressivism and denunciation are limited to only those cases where people deserve and also within this boundary of what is uh, deserved. And I think I, I claim that uh, expressivism and the communicative theories ultimately really boil down um, to a, tr- a, a retributivist story about what people deserve and, um, and in proportion um, uh, to what is deserved. And uh, I'll also say something in particular with the uh, communicative um, theory, the idea that, so, so the communicative uh, view of expressivism says that expressivism should be more than just the state saying, we don't like what you did, but the offender saying from his or her prison cell, I'm sorry 
uh, to you uh, uh, for what I did. Here you have, uh, you know, what is the communication that offenders are giving us? Well, it turns out on most stories that this communication is nothing more than the, 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 the poor person serving their prison sentence, of course, coerced uh, without, <laughs> you know, not out of choice. Um, they need not do anything. They need not actually apologize to uh, satisfy the demands of what Duff will call uh, secular penance. And I, I just find much of it kind of metaphorical and not really uh, doing much of the work that it um, uh, claims it, it does. So on the one hand, I think expressivism gets something right about uh, punishment surely is a kind of denunciation, uh, at least to some degree. Uh, it's hard to disagree with that, I think. But it's not quite clear what deep work it's doing, because at the end of the day, when we, when we, when we try to see where it might depart in certain ways from a standard or attributivist story, I, I, I couldn't find anything, um, I certainly couldn't find anything uh, uh, obvious. Uh, and then before that chapter, uh, you know, I, I do talk about Rawls, Hart, and Nick's theory, in part just to show a kind of a first uh, contemporary uh, attempt to uh, to bring together different views. But as you say, uh, I do argue that uh, it basically inherits many of the problems that they try uh, to overcome. Right. And this seems to be a, um, just to make a, a more general philosophical point, this does seem to be a standing problem philosophically with what we might think of as Goldilocks views, right? You know, <laughs> philosophers sort of come along uh, after philosophers have been arguing about something. There are three or four views on the table. Somebody has the bright idea, and it is a bright idea. Well, uh, let's try to get what's good in each of these and leave behind what's, ba what's bad in each of these. Sure. So you get hybrid views in all kinds of uh, areas oh, of yeah. philosophy. And the standing problem is always um, – uh, okay, well, you've put together uh, a, a, a nice view, taking the, the good and leaving the bad of, of each of the competitors, mm. but there's still always going to be the question of the prioritization of the component parts, yeah. right? Uh, what, Which of these commitments is driving the others? Because then it looks as if, as you just said about the uh, um, expressivist and communicative, uh, communicative views, that um, you know they're really being driven by uh, the retributivist insight, um, and the others are kind of uh, sort of riders or, 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 yeah. or, or uh, adjuncts. Uh, so um, it looks as if, uh, as your argument runs, um, these expressivist views are really just sort of um, retributivisms dressed up in a more ecumenical garb, uh, yes. an attempt to sort of be retributivist, but, but hold on to what's good and everything else. Mm -hmm. Now, I take it, though, that you want to claim of your own view, mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, the unified theory, that it doesn't suffer from this sort of Goldilocks kind of problem. That's right. And it is the case that I think that, you know, one of the things I want to do is show, I think that communicative theories and others are, are you know, I want to show the, you know, the emperor in his clothes. Um, so I think that's right. I do. I would say all those things about that view. Right. But I, I, right. I take it that the unified view, though, is not an attempt to make a hybrid of the other competing views. Right. So it's not Goldilocks. It's an attempt to put together in a single theory of punishment. Mm. What the competing views see as the and as you uh, what you accept as legitimate aims of punishment, right? Yes. That is, the unified theory is trying to unify 
the different penal aims mm -hmm. rather than to unify the different theories of the nature of punishment. That's right. right. So it's a hybrid in one sense, but it's not hybrid in the other. It's not a hybrid theory of punishment. Mm -hmm. It's a single theory of punishment that has a pluralistic or hybrid view of the aims of punishment. Does that, does that sound right? That's absolutely uh, right and, uh, and very well uh, said. And it was also the uh, cause for some uh, uh, delay uh, uh, in this book because I, I wanted to not just survey what people had said and, and, hoping, and, and uh, hoping to raise uh, new objections, new issues, which I, which I uh, hope to have done um, with all other uh, theories of punishment that I consider. But I wanted to also offer uh, something positive, so not just kind of criticize others for what they uh, said, but also say something about what I think they ought to uh, say, what kind of view they could have uh, defended. One thing that has struck me about debates over theories of punishment is that there's a way in which these things go. And the way these things go is that you choose your favorite view and you dig in deeper um, and deeper. Um, and so the retributivists and the deterrence proponents, they are in particularly deep. Um, the rehabilitation proponents are almost as, as deeply dug, uh, dug in. Um, and there hasn't been as you know much reproachment or much attempts to try to really genuinely bridge uh, uh, different uh, uh, views. And I wanted to uh, do something about that, not least because, as I say, I think each of these views has got something right. Uh, the trick was trying to see or trying to conceive um, how uh, that could be done, um, how I could bring together, um, a, a, in a sense, uh, retribution, deterrence, and other views in a way that could avoid uh, these many objections. How could I have my cake um, and eat it too. And of course, you know, some people have tried to do it like Rawls Hart and Hart, others of trying to say, well, different principles come into the story at different stages um, uh, or, you know, different times in, uh, in uh, thinking about sentencing. Um, what I ultimately did was try to reconceive the framework. So one way sort of focus on the different theories, not as well, not focusing so much on the theories, as you say, but focusing on uh, the aim. So I'm not trying to, the unified theory is not unifying retributivism, deterrence. And I also, I, I should say, I, I apparently can say retributivism faster than anybody. Um, <laughs> so retributivism, retributivism, you know, when you work on punishment long enough, these things roll off the tongue. Um, but uh, not so much bringing together the theories, which of course, uh, this incoherence problem is one I think is, is difficult, if not impossible to overcome. But instead try to bring together What's, what's, what's attractive about each of these views? Um, so what's attractive about, say, retribution is not that it's, I don't know, retribution. It's this idea about some, some kind of idea of desert, that, that we're not punishing innocent people is doing something. And that there should be some kind of link between what someone did and, uh, and then the, uh, how we uh, punish um, that individual. Deterrence uh, gets right. Well, you know, who knows? As I say, you know, what is the detail? What, what is the data on whether or not deterrence works? Uh, but what it gets right is the idea of crime reduction. So, uh, so think about the aim of, of crime reduction and rehabilitation and restorative justice. And thinking about this this restoration uh, process, what are the things that that view uh, gets right? And try to bring together the different principles that drive each of these theories, not the theories themselves, uh, but the, right. but these different uh, principles that drive them, and try to create. 
um, in a sense, a, a new uh, framework um, by which they can um, exist. Uh, and, and so what I uh, uh, do in this unified uh, theory, how I try to unify these, is under a framework of thinking about uh, rights, thinking about crimes as uh, violations of rights, that punishment is a response uh, to crime uh, that tries to um, address this problem. And in a sense, the, the more sensual our rights are, um, uh, you know, perhaps a difficult thing to work out, but the more sensual or fundamental our rights are, um, the more uh, a response is necessary. And, um, uh, and using that as a kind of general model for thinking through uh, how crime reduction and other elements uh, might uh, play a role. All right, so let's uh, let's let's dig a little bit deeper, um, if that's okay. Um, so um, the so it seems like the central plank of the unified theory is this uh, this point that you were just uh, speaking about, which is punishment is the restoration of rights, or punishment is the means by which rights are restored. Um, A Hegelian uh, idea. Well, that that's exactly right, um, uh, and um, so. Uh, let me let me though ask. Um, uh, at various points in the book, you refer to rights as substantive freedoms. Yes. Um, so, can you just fill in a little bit? And and uh, I take it that this is also a uh, a, a, a part of your view, which is influenced by Hegel. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this conception of you know, so punishment is the restoration of rights, and rights, I take it, you hold are substantive freedoms. Could you tell us about that conception of rights? Yes. Well, uh, there's much to be said about this. So one issue I became, uh, I was very aware of is, you know, if, if, if I were to say that, um, uh, you know, what, what punishment is, is, you know, punishment is justified as a response to crimes. Um, and, uh, well, then I've got a, a kind of uh, potentially deeply problematic conservatism. Uh, happening here. So I don't want to say punishment is justified in response to any uh, crime. I want to say that, uh, that, the, that the crime is to be justified itself. And one thing I think perhaps novel uh, about this or, or, or something that hasn't been said by most commentators working on uh, the philosophy of punishment, uh, to my great surprise, is that punishment and crime, there's a link about justice uh, between the two. So Often discussions about uh, the justification of punishment happen almost independently of what the crimes are that these punishments are for, um, and I wanted to say that these that there must be uh, some kind of uh, link between them. There could not be uh, a just punishment for an unjust uh, crime, and that then raises the question of all right, uh, Tom Brooks, thank you very much for that deep uh, penetrating insight. So, what is a what, what kinds of things should count as crimes and which things should not? And, of course, to do that is itself a massive project, thinking through what, you know, criminalization, um, you know, itself a, a huge minefield requiring a book at least as long as the one um, that I wrote. But what I wanted to do is, yes, say this, I, I have this idea about fundamental freedoms, because what I wanted to do, what I had in mind here, um, in terms of the kinds of rights motivating these, um <laughs> I'm uh, is some. I wanted to satisfy at least two different kinds of views about freedom that I find persuasive. I'm still working through for myself which one I like the most. So I wanted to have a view that was agreeable to both. 
<laughs> one is uh, you'll be you'll be unsurprised because I know you, you know, we know we know each other and I know you know my views. Uh, you'll be unsurprised here about both of them. One view is the view of Martha Nussbaum, whose work has been very influential on me in, in many ways, even though she doesn't write much about uh, punishment. Uh, she has uh, and certainly has written a lot about freedom uh, and right. rights uh, through the capabilities approach. And um, uh, and I wanted to, you know, so one way of thinking about, well, what do you mean by the uh, fundamental freedoms that uh, that are protected by the criminal law? This idea that the law is giving protection to, uh, to, to rights. Well, what's doing the work here? Well, one thing would be that which is consistent uh, with the with the with the capabilities uh, approach, um, so uh, very broad. But 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 to give just a little, not much, but just give you a little uh, flesh on sure. the bones. The other view that I find persuasive, um, but can't, but but am not an adherent yet of either, is uh, is the Republican theory of of Philip Pettit, which I find um, uh, very uh, uh, compelling. But but just. Uh, but but still not yet in that camp, and of course that's a view, right? That um, you know we're free where we're say not dominated, right? Um, and I'm of course you know convinced by work you've done and others um, that has been uh, uh, critical to raising real issues about that view as well. I wanted to well put it this way: um, the, there, these are two different uh, views about uh, what could be subsidy freedoms that that could qualify that, that speak to the kinds of things that that, that are. You know that rights are uh, uh, protecting the kinds of fundamental freedoms that could be respected by anything uh, the capabilities approach by Martin Spahn would accept, or anything that a Republican theory that Pettit would have would accept. Um, and I think broadly uh, many others. So you know, you give me a substantive uh, view about a freedom that you find uh, acceptable. Okay, let's use that for thinking about uh, you know. So right, so the criminal law will give protection to those rights that you know the rights. Uh, uh, that you think uh, protect the th things you think are fundamental uh, freedoms that are acceptable to you, and I will then show you that the unified theory is 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 on balance best uh, for uh, going forward with this. So I'm I'm indicative in the book of of the of the kinds of things I mean by fundamental freedoms. I think I've got a long footnote about uh, the capabilities and republicanism um, mm -hmm. in in the book. Without uh, I didn't want to pin myself down to one. Uh, particular view about the things that with which which are fundamental freedoms in part because I wanted to keep my focus one on punishment not get into a much longer debate about what is the nature of freedom and how does this work and that could take me far beyond issues of, of, of punishment and I also didn't want people to be too critical of what I say about uh, punishment because of my particular views uh, that I might or might not endorse uh, ultimately uh, on uh, on uh, freedom, but rights does have an important uh, role. So I'm not saying rights can be anything. I think that rights have to be uh, protecting fundamental freedoms. Uh, I'm indicative of, of two different views that I think uh, would be certainly acceptable for what I want to uh, say. But I'm I'm very clear that I don't think that that, that list of capabilities and republicanism is somehow exhaustive of all the different uh, views about freedom and rights and other things that could be acceptable. Um, uh, here for my view. I'm, I'm want to be uh, open to that at least uh, for now, uh, for my uh, present uh, purposes. And then say, look, you know, so so it's not a conservative view that any old thing, any old view about freedoms and rights uh, can be criminalized. I, I I give some 
very vague here, uh, admittedly. Right. Um, and I also don't want to say any old uh, thing we want to criminalize. And, and I want to say, no, no, not anything uh, we, we criminalize. Uh, not anything can be criminalized. It, crimes have to satisfy this, this threshold of, of protecting some kind of rights and understood and, and at least that very, very uh, bare uh, minimum uh, uh, sense. Um, and I think whatever view we would find acceptable would at least satisfy that uh, and, and probably and surely go uh, uh, more uh, far beyond that and in more, uh, more robust sense. But, but that's what I was getting at in the background um, uh, picture. I see. So um, one of the sort of um, sort of driving commitments, I think, of the unified theory is this conception of the stakeholder society. And in particular, um, some of the things you say uh, indicate that, um, you know, crime itself might be understood as um, the, the kind of um, outcome of uh, people feeling uh, insufficiently invested in the fate of their communities. Yes. Um, uh, at other points, you say that um, punishment has to serve this purpose or has to serve this uh, aim of helping to reestablish or to help um, um, offenders realize the stake that they have mm. uh, in the health of their society. So uh, it looks as if this idea of stakeholding mm-hmm. um, plays a, a large role in uh, the, in this unified uh, view. So maybe that might be a good way to, to, to tell us first about the idea of stakeholding mm-hmm. and then spell out uh, this, this conception of punishment uh, uh, from the unified theories view uh, that follows out of that conception of, uh, of, of having a stake in one society. Excellent. Well, the... Um Stakeholding does have an important role to play. Um, so as I say, you know, I, I think that uh, the, just, the justification of punishment, I think, has some kind of link with, with, with uh, crime and, uh, and the criminal law. And likewise, with some kind of broader um, normative, uh, as it were, background, uh, you know, not just any old laws or crimes should count, but, but, but some, some kind of general picture. And what led me to think about stakeholding was in uh, one of so, so the case studies in the book uh, look at the death penalty, look at juvenile offending, look at domestic violence, and look at um, there's a, a chapter on sex crimes, uh, looking at rape and child sex offenders, and, and each looks at how uh, different theories of punishment uh, respond, perhaps surprisingly, uh, uh, differently to um, these different um, cases. And, and a few words about why I thought the unified theory handled them best. And this idea of stakeholding really. Uh, comes up, you know, one good example where it comes up uh, in a real uh, central way is in juvenile offending, uh, youth offending. Um, so with youth offending, uh, what I look at uh, there in particular is I focus on, there's a lot of efforts made to identify so-called risk factors. So uh, what is it that, you know, uh, what are the risk factors associated with youth offending? This is wildly important because the, you know, an overwhelming number of people who are, uh, the overwhelming majority of people who are uh, offenders are people who are either presently youth offenders or have been uh, youth offenders. So tackling youth offending is not just a way of reducing crime by youth, but it's also a way of, of addressing crime uh, overall uh, and over time. Um, and so you see lots of different stories about how we should identify uh, the risk factors. And the common ones for youth and for adults are things like Unemployment, uh, financial insecurity, 
housing insecurity. And you can see with these ideas of employment and finance and housing, that, that there's there's overlap, right? So if you don't have much, if you don't have employment, then you might have financial insecurity. You might have housing insecurity. But these are each identified separately. Also, having negative um, uh, networks, um, uh, uh, support networks. Uh, so having uh, unhealthy, abusive uh, uh, relationships at, at home or amongst friends, or or lack of that. Um, you know, being uh, alone and disconnected. That these are. Um, uh, various risk factors. And so the traditional way of thinking about youth offending and, and other kinds of offenders is to identify what these risk factors are and then to tackle each one, as it were, kind of independently. Um, and so if, 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 you know, unemployment is an issue uh, uh, associated with, with offending, so the, you know, so the thought is if you have higher unemployment, then you are on balance will have higher um, offending. So what you want to do is create jobs. It's not just good economic sense. It's good criminal justice policy. Um, if housing uh, insecurity is an issue, that the, the, the more people are having trouble maintaining some kind of regular um, uh, 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 home uh, or place they can call home, then the more likely they might be to offend. Then the thought is, well, doing something about um, uh, how these housing issues, uh, it's not just good uh, housing policy, it's also good criminal justice policy and so on. I'm sure you see where I'm going with that. Sure. And, and so the idea of stakeholding is to say something substantive about, well, what's doing the work? So is it just kind of this hodgepodge, this kind of collection of different things out there that just so happen to be associated? And we address a little bit of this and a little bit of that, a bit of bat wing and uh, mole bone and, and I don't know what uh, in this witch's brew. And then we'll somehow have this kind of good effect. And of course, it is the case that you know, when we uh, uh, tackle unemployment, you do often see reductions in employment, but not always. Uh, when you tackle the things, you do see this. And so you can see how that cycle has been, uh, has why it's continued. But what I argue is that stakeholding is important. Where I get this idea is from perhaps an unconventional uh, place. It's from uh, Hegel's philosophy of right. Right. In Hegel's philosophy of right, uh, one of the, he thinks that one of the big problems for modern society uh, in uh, 1820 uh, is the problem of poverty or the problem of the rabble. And the yeah. idea is that in society, there's a group of people that are often but not always at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder. And that these uh, and, and that these people are disconnected to society, that they look to society as an other that the laws of society and, the, and its institutions are things that are part of the lives of other people, not part of their lives. And so they're disconnected and they act contrary to this. So they act um, without regard to um, the rest of society. And Hegel sees this as a deeply uh, problem, a source of, of, of not just crime, but much, much deeper uh, problems for the continuation of a uh, just society, or put in Rawlsian in terms of problem for political stability, uh, is the existence of, of a rabble. Crucially for Hegel, the, the rabble, it's not just about material uh, wealth. Uh, it's not just people at the bottom. It's also at the very bottom. It's also people at the very top. And so one of the things I want to say about the rabble, I think the rabble is, is Hegel's discussion of the rabble, is actually very useful for thinking about how we should understand uh, risk factors in a kind of a with a more coherent approach, and that is for Hegel the problem is a problem of a state of mind. That the problem of, of the rabble is that they 
see themselves as not being recognized, well, in Hegel's terms, not being recognized by others. But, you know, recognition has got baggage in philosophy and elsewhere. It can mean lots of different things, evokes lots of different thoughts of lots of different philosophers, some of whom people are just perhaps naturally opposed. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> so I wanted to kind of have my own language. Um, and so I, I borrow a phrase, uh, you know, uh, Tony Blair, Prime Minister of, of Britain, uh, borrowed this idea of the stakeholder economy from uh, Will Hutton, this idea that the, the problem of the market is uh, that uh, it's not transparent enough, it's not open enough, and, and people ought to see themselves as having a stake in it. And I, I, I change stakeholder economy to stakeholder society and say that, the, that what Hegel's getting at with the rabble is that people do not see themselves as having a stake in society, and that is what's doing uh, the work. Uh, you often see, you know, so, so the problem with folks who are, you know, the risk factors of unemployment or housing insecurity and financial insecurity and others isn't so much that they are unemployed or that they have problems with housing others, because lots of people have these problems and don't offend. So why is it that some are perhaps at higher risk than others? What explains this? And what also explains why many of these risk factors overlap? Not all are about monetary uh, wealth. Some are about support networks and other kinds of things. And I think part of it is this mindset of seeing yourself or oneself as not having a stake in society and the, and the importance of seeing yourself in society. And then, of course, the importance of society being a place in which you should want to have a stake. Um, so, it's, so it's not a conservative view and a sense of just saying, you know, looking to your state and saying, you know, hey, that, you know, this is my state. I should grin and bear it. And, you know, the state has to be has to have these normative, uh, fulfill these normative aspirations itself. It can't just be any old uh, uh, kind of, of place. But there's there's this importance of 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 this uh, 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 being a place in which you want to have a, a stake. And this is, of course, I think makes a lot of sense. And there's a hypothesis uh, in the book that that people who um, uh, don't have these risk factors, of course, you know, uh, what might explain why they're not uh, offending is that they do see themselves in, uh, as having a stake. So those who are employed, who have pension plans, who are paying their mortgages, uh, and, or, or aspire to uh, be employed and have mortgages and, and have pensions and other kinds of things, are people who look to the system as a, as a place or, or, a, or a, kind, a sphere in which they want to relate to others, in which they want to be a part, in which uh, problems are to be resolved within the system, within the game, um, and not uh, and not without. And that that uh, is an important thing for thinking about risk factors, thinking about stakeholding, and not in terms of these isolated risk factors that can look like lists that don't have any kind of uh, content or unity or, or something. So I try to say something um, about that. And the relationship, uh, as it were, for uh, punishment is, as I say this, this idea of the society as a stakeholder society, a society in which we should all want to or should be able to see ourselves as having a, a stake, um, is this kind of broad indication of this kind of uh, uh, broad uh, background of justice that helps inform the view, I think, about uh, criminal law and punishment that all kind of uh, fit together. Because I don't think punishment can be thought of separately from criminal law, separately from uh, these uh, wider um, considerations. And principally, though, uh, stakeholding plays a role for two things. One, uh, it plays a role in helping identify, you know, helping us think through these risk factors, as I've already said, uh, some like now. But the other thing I think it helps us 
uh, do and helps inform, is help thinking about um, uh, how we could rethink uh, punishment. So this unified theory about bringing together different principles, one question is why the, why the heck do it? And the other is um, what does it look like? Um, and then perhaps the third is, is, is a, maybe a brief historical thing I might just say very briefly. Mm-hmm. Um, so one, why think this stuff in the first place? Well, uh, when we uh, look away from much of, the, much of the work by philosophers on punishment, when we look to the uh, literature by people who uh, on sentencing uh, policy itself, we discover all kinds of things. One, that 1962, there was a model penal code. The model penal code was wildly, in the United States, wildly influential um, in the U.S. um, for the very good reason that each of the 50 states had their own views about what was murder, what was theft. There was inconsistency in how this was understood and how it was sentenced. And the model penal code was was an attempt to think through, however badly and problematic as it, as it is, it was an attempt to think through how there could be some kind of broad overlap, so there could be some consist- consistency amongst the uh, 50 states, um, and it had some good effect. And one of the things it does is it says that there are uh, uh, multiple uh, purposes for sentencing, including retributivist dessert, that you know, so, so punishment should be uh, deserved. It should have an eye towards uh, um, uh, uh, deterrence. It should uh, have a view towards public safety. It should try to enable the rehabilitation of offenders where it can, and uh, so on. Of course, there isn't much uh, said in the model penal code as just a code, uh, not a uh, elaborate philosophical defense about how these mo- different uh, uh, purposes for punishment can be uh, brought together. But this idea that punishment should be, a sentencing policy should be based around different, uh, this kind of what I call penal pluralism, different purposes for punishment, has only been around for several uh, decades. Model Penal Code was very influential in the United States. Um, uh, most states now uh, uh, have sentencing guidelines. Um, all sentencing guidelines that exist uh, uh, give, uh, uh, you know, express uh, these different purposes for sentencing uh, in their guidelines. Um, they're also present in the federal sentencing guidelines. Those states that do not yet have uh, sentencing guidelines, like my home state of Connecticut, uh, uh, they do have a sentencing uh, guidelines commission meeting right now. And uh, one of the things they're doing in their brief is to come up with guidelines that satisfy multiple pur- purposes uh, for uh, sentencing. And this is not just an American kind of thing. It's been exported. So in England and Wales, which is a single jurisdiction uh, in criminal law in the UK, also, you know, Scotland and elsewhere, uh, the sentencing guidelines that exist for these countries also has expressly uh, in England and Wales five purposes for uh, sentencing. And, um, and these incorporate the different, uh, uh, different principles that I try to express in my unified um, theory. And so, you know, so w- why think these kinds of things? Well, one is that uh, when we turn to what judges actually do in the real world, it turns out it's very different from much of the stuff that is defended by uh, many uh, uh, philosophers, that uh, the, the practice for 50 years um, uh, for many jurisdictions has been, um, or at least other places uh, for several decades, has been this um kind of hybrid, uh, uh, bringing together different uh, purposes. Uh, but where the practices have had a problem, that there hasn't been any kind of robust way of thinking about 
how they could be, uh, how they should come together, or why uh, these, uh, why uh, this and that uh, purpose and not uh, other purposes. So my unified theory wants to say something about uh, how you could unify uh, different purposes, but also why uh, these. And I and I say why. Uh, uh, dessert, uh, a particular view about dessert and crime reduction and others, is because these are all about the protection of rights. Um, so um, what we want to do, uh, if, if crimes are violation of rights and punishments, uh, I understand them as responses to crimes, then punishment aims at a restoration of rights, a protection of the rights that have been uh, infringed or violated um, uh, through crimes. And, and, uh, and, and crime reduction in other ways are uh, great principles for thinking uh, how, about how uh, we uh, could do it. So, uh, so in some sense, uh, I'm trying to uh, provide a philosophical defense uh, uh, for the uh, for practices that are longstanding in the United States, mm-hmm. uh, the United Kingdom, uh, and else, uh, where uh, for many uh, years, um, I then try to give uh, some indication of what this might look like in practice with an idea I call a punitive uh, restoration or uh, which I, I see giving expression to uh, a restoration of uh, rights view. So I say lots of good things about restorative uh, justice, uh, and there's much, many good things to say uh, about it. So this, again, is a, a, a meeting of uh, victims, uh, where victims are willing and where there are victims. Not every crime has a, a victim uh, or individual victim. Sometimes the victim is all of us, you might say, or, or just actually right. the victim might be the offender. Um, bringing together victims where relevant, the offender, um, and, uh, and, and sometimes uh, members of the community to uh, discuss the, uh, have a constructive dialogue about uh, what, why the offense happened, how, what effect these offenses had on uh, people that it did, and what would be the best ways of tailoring the offense to uh, address uh, the problems uh, that the crime uh, gave uh, rise to. And this, this approach has been very successful at, at improved crime reduction rates. It's done all the kinds of things the unified theory ought to do. The people, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the offenders have to uh, admit uh, guilt to, for the procedure to start. So there's an element of, of dessert happening, but without all the, the kind of baggage about bringing in uh, certain kinds of issues about mora- uh, morality, I think, or natural law, I find problematic with many retributivist accounts. So there's an element of dessert happening. Uh, uh, the uh, punishment, the response is tailor-made to address the, the, the problem of the crime in the context in which it happens. So you have this in proportion to the offense. There's a clear effort at crime reduction that has been achieved um, uh, so they, uh, some studies show that uh, restorative justice uh, has shown uh, improvements about 25% less uh, uh, crime, uh, less recidivism than, um, than alternative models. So it achieves crime reduction. It enables rehabilitation often written into the restorative contracts agreed at these conferences are the offender will uh, 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 take some kind of drug and alcohol treatment or cognitive behavior therapy or engage in employability uh, um, uh, skills, uh, uh, training, and so on. Um, and, oh, and also engage in, in some kind of reparation to offenders. So many of the boxes, boxes that I want to tick with the unified theory, many of the purposes for punishment seem to be addressed by the restorative view. But the question, the problems I had with the restorative view were, again, 
well, what the, what is being restored? And you have all these different views about, well, it's unequal standing between you and me and, and self and other and all this other uh, stuff, which I found wildly unconvincing um, uh, and, uh, and so on for reasons like um, inequality between the standing of different peoples can exist independently of whether or not they've committed any offense and so on. So what's specific about this offense that gives rise to the inequalities that, that punishment ought to address? And I thought the, the thing to be restored is not necessarily moral standing as such, but in, though I think that's also something worth, uh, worthy of addressing for a wider view about justice and distributive justice. But instead, the restoration of rights and the rights violations, we should have a kind of focus about uh, that. So what is to be restored is, is, is the rights that have come threatened by the criminal actions by offenders. Um, and and, and that, that encompasses, it's wide enough to include all the kinds of things we want to include, namely criminal people who have done criminal offenses, but it's not so wide to include other kinds of things, namely, you know, kind of non-offenses uh, or, or non-violations of, of, of rights. But it also addresses this issue, this issue about uh, stakeholding. So if, uh, if it's important that society be a place in which I have a stake and, and that this idea is a view, view about justice, it's not just a wish, but it's something that should be really kind of, in some sense, kind of roll out, then I think that the restorative framework can uh, do this. And of course, you see that victims and offenders claim that they, that, that they have higher satisfaction uh, uh, rates uh, in uh, using restorative conferences versus alternatives. It's unsurprising why, because here they have, uh, they can see that they have a stake in the proceedings. They are able, you know, the offender is able to give some expression to why he or she did what they did, and the, the victim is able to speak to the the, 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 the damage that inflicted, and, and and also they can all be in a dialogue about what they think uh, should happen. Likewise, members of the uh, local uh, community as well. So I think that the uh, some say the jury might be, uh, you know, the jury trial is a, a kind of mini parliament, a mini democracy. And I think, well, using running along with metaphors, perhaps there, this idea of, of restorative justice might be um, a kind of miniature uh, stakeholder uh, society. But I go further and I think that restorative justice views, they, they rule out um, on the whole the use of uh, prison, say that, you know, restor restoration just doesn't happen in prisons. I think that that is probably misconceived. It, it's probably untrue that, uh, it, it's probably, is, I'm sure it is the case, that restoration is highly unlikely. Uh, people are, uh, are, you know, often, when people go to prison, they often come back much worse. Prison can be a bad place for many people, but also it can be a very uh, constructive place, actually, for a lot of people, because a lot of offenders are uh, uh, engrossed in uh, highly negative support networks, and it could be important to have a kind of cooling off period um, and also, uh, 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 you know, when people find themselves doing uh, uh, crimes for which sentencing is, is, is an option, it's often not the, the first time that there's problems in that, that person's life that, um, that uh, he or she could, could, um, uh, could be helped with. It's often a confirmation of longstanding uh, issues. And I think that prison can be a place uh, that should be used, um, not for as long as it is, I, uh, uh, it could be used very differently, and I, I try to give some ideas about how prison could be used uh, uh, more innovatively uh, to enable restoration in, in short uh, but intensive um, uh, ways um, that can bring about restoration. And I call this punitive restoration, that it's uh, thinking about restoration uh, not just in terms of uh, 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 treatment programs and community sentencing and, re and reparations to 
victims, but also as possibly also incorporating some kind of brief um, term in, in prison. I think that that could be uh, likely. And what would be good about that, I, I'll just add, is, is also making restorative justice uh, uh, more applicable to more cases, because restorative justice isn't really, in a sense, a theory about justice the way it is presented, because it's only used for minor offenses by minors. Um, it's not something that anyone uh, uh, generally uh, 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 endorses for more violent uh, offenses. And I think um, uh, with some interesting uh, differences with domestic violence, some uh, some people think restorative justice is the way to go with domestic violence. Others uh, uh, have, have other uh, starkly different views. Um, so it's a way to, to try to roll out restorative justice more, a way of bringing the public in to thinking about sentencing, which I think could be a good thing. Um, but the bringing the public in in an informed way through engagement in the restorative um, conference setting or the punitive restorative framework that I outlined. Can I just say one last word here about sure. the historical roots? Yeah, good. Um, I've said all this, and we've had a wonderful conversation that I've, I, I knew I would enjoy thoroughly and, and of course, have. Um, but I was able to do all of this without really saying a whole lot about Hegel and right. British idealism. And, and that was also a purpose of the book. Um, <laughs> John Rawls says many good things. One of the good things he says in the beginning of A Theory of Justice is that uh, you know, he claims no originality for his views, that he's basically taking old wine and he's putting it in new bottles. He's resetting uh, old arguments in new ways to bring out their full force, that there's a lot of good things that Rousseau and Kant and Hume had to offer, and he's going to show us how we can bring these things together in a new way, uh, in, a, in a distinctive way, um, to uh, bring uh, widespread support. Uh, and that is exactly what I had in mind here. I, uh, the, the, the philosophers that had a very huge role in the background of my thinking is, is Hegel and the British idealists. Um, Hegel, of course, will be familiar to listeners, no doubt, but, but why I, I, I have him in mind may be less clear. Hegel says a comment around page 465, uh, a place that not many people get to, I dare say, in the science, <laughs> in the science of logic. Yes, I think an argument in science of logic uh, is highly, uh, you know, reveals something very true about punishment. He gives an, an illustration of, of a, a view about philosophical grounding, which I won't get into. Um, and the example is punishment. He says that the mistake people make is thinking that punishment is either retribution, deterrence, or rehabilitation. In fact, punishment is all three. Now, of course, Hegel would have to say something like that. And it's striking that, you know, no one has thought Hegel would say, you know, a guy who thinks, you know, the Trinity is, is at the heart of his philosophy in so many ways and how his dialectic uh, 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 unravels, as some people might say, or develops if you're more charitable, um, that he would try to think this three in one, not just about <laughs> ideas about uh, uh, other issues of philosophy and religion and other things, but also about punishment. But of course, Hegel doesn't really say a whole lot about how that is to be cashed out. And how it's being developed. And I just had that tantalizing idea in the back of my mind. That was the first thought uh, that, that, that got things running for me. And, ooh, this could be a distinctive way, a different way of thinking about punishment, that it's not separate. People get wrong with their different camps, but they really should be brought together. But I had no clear idea about how I could take that forward. 
Then enter into the picture British idealists. So British idealists are, are surely, uh, uh, um, you know, probably less familiar to many uh, listeners. And they broadly are people like Bradley and T.H. Green, who some might have heard of, and others less familiar, like Bernard Bosenkate, who was originally from Northumberland, the area of, of Britain that I live in. Um, and his family, of course, is actually still in uh, Northumbria. Um, and other people as well, like James uh, Seth, who worked broadly in the uh, 19th uh, century or early 20th century. And folks like Collingwood and others, and what they were doing, um, or perhaps one of the things they were very famous for, uh, other than being wrong. Of course, you know, they had a long line of critics of Bertrand Russell and others who, you know, they're probably most famous for being wrong, uh, you know, as many people. But, um, but one of the things that they uh, were famous for and should be famous for is introducing to English language philosophy the work of of Kant and Hegel, and that's that's exactly what they did. But also, they tried to bring uh, the work of Kant and Hegel uh, uh, together. Now, one of the things that so, so there's an interest in looking at the British idealists: Bradley, Green, Bosanquet, Collingwood, uh, Caird, uh, uh, Seth, and others to to learn more about early receptions of Kant and Hegel in a kind of historical way. But there's also, I think, another reason to have interest that many of these philosophers, and I've spent a lot of time, a lot of work. Uh, unpacking this, um, they seem to, to catch on to Hegel's three-in-one argument. So it is the case that, that Green and Bosenkett and others argue for this three-in-one view. They all say, uh, where, you know, those who do talk about punishment do say that punishment should not be conceived in terms of retribution or deterrence or rehabilitation, that these things are, are three-in-one. And it was within perhaps the, a more obscure British idealist named James Seth who wrote a, a book on a study of ethical principles, a wonderful book, um, uh, about 1890s, where he says that the way we should think about this was within a context of, of, of a rights framework. So I've taken a lot of these ideas about thinking about the protection of rights and the relationship between law and morality, law, morality, and punishment, um, how we might be able to bring together different purposes through this kind of background ideas about Hegel and British idealism. I think they get right that these views can be brought together, that it can be brought together through a rights framework, that it can be done, uh, that, there's, that there's something very attractive about this. Um, but of course, the way I think they all did it was wrong. And so my, my way, so what I wanted to do was have a book about punishment that defends a kind of a neo-British idealist view about punishment without itself getting into the metaphysics and all the other problems that those views are very well known for, for having. So, uh, so, there's, so there's, there's some thoughts about the, the background. So why have a unified theory? Well, sentencing policy does it, and it's kind of surprising. A lot of philosophers haven't uh, seemed to notice this in their work. How, does it, how might it work? Well, it might work through this idea of punitive restoration that I set out, this modification about how restorative justice might work in, in theory and in practice. And also this wider idea of stakeholding and, uh, and unification is built upon this framework. I didn't get it over overnight, uh, uh, apple falling on my head. Uh, it, it hit me uh, uh, reading Hegel's Science of Logic. That's not something that a lot of people can say. Um, and, <laughs> and the work of some great British idealists that I also hope through the book to uh, popularize. I hope, uh, hope to popularize uh, interest in Green and Bosenkat and others more through the book as well as a kind of background project. Well, Tom, um, thank you so much. Uh, you've been very generous with your time. Um, 
And uh, we've been talking about your book, uh, Punishment, uh, which uh, is, is, is uh, highly recommended. Um, uh, thank you so much for joining us on New Books in Philosophy. My great pleasure. And I'm so honored to have this chance to uh, talk at some length about uh, a project that is uh, taking up my time, as I say, you know, uh, issues I've been grappling with since um, I was a graduate student and, and, and certainly continue to grapple with now. Well, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. You've been listening to my interview with Professor Tom Brooks of Durham Law School. We were talking about his new book, Punishment, published by Routledge. I'm Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening.